Philip says, isn't this going to create the same problem that we had during the housing crisis where we were allowing people to get into homes that they couldn't afford? Well, uh, not this time. Um, and I'll give you, this is something, this is a concern we hear a lot. Once more into the breach, dear friends. Hell, spill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to an exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we will talk about things like home loans and Federal Reserve Open Market Committee and other truly interesting things, only when we're talking about loan interest rates. Most people aren't that interested in it, though. We'll try to make it interesting. We'll do our best. At the end of last hour, I talked about how housing starts are rising a little bit. They're actually a little bit higher than they were in March of 2019, which is obviously before the pandemic. It's really hard to look during the pandemic and get any kind of reasonable numbers out of it because everything was weird. Still a little weird, but not as weird as it was. So uh, Philip says, isn't this going to create the same problem that we had during the housing crisis where we were allowing people to get into homes that they couldn't afford? Well, uh, not this time. Um, And I'll give you this is something this is a concern we hear a lot. We're we're generally pretty afraid of the big disaster that we've already seen during the global financial crisis. Then the time that led up to it. We had really quite low interest rates and we had a lot of incentive to give loans to people that couldn't afford them. Uh, the, the ninja loan is a great one. Uh, the no income, no job uh, or, or uh, prospects thereof. or the, are, that's, that's not happening now. In fact, we had a bit of the opposite of that. Uh, during the time period right after SVB failed, there was a pretty big concern at the Federal Reserve and just about everywhere else as well that loans were just going to stop happening, that we were going to have a freeze up in the mid-sized banks. And that's where a lot of those mortgages come from. And we saw it happen for about three weeks. Loans, big new loans just came to a sudden stop. If you had a house closing going on right in that time period, you're aware of this. Everything was put on hold. They didn't know what was going on. They had deposits leaving in mass. So we really have the opposite. And let me explain that. Leading up to the Great Recession, we had a lot of houses being built. We had an overcapacity of houses. A lot of houses got built. Enough so that the housing demand was taken care of for about six years afterwards, just on the surplus that was built. Well, since that period, housing has really not been a big area. There hasn't been a lot of people making houses. And we had a lot of people, the millennials were kind of famous for living with their parents for a lot longer because they were terrified of getting into that failure that we'd just seen in the housing market. Because so few houses were made for so long, we don't have enough houses to meet the demand right now, which is part of the reason why we saw this big housing price bubble. We didn't have a lot of people buying extra houses when they said they were primary residents that they weren't really. We we have seen a lot of uh, Airbnb businesses start up, but if you look at the traditional renting market, you see that that dried up at the same time, the Airbnb market and the, and the other 
online rental for short-term periods market boomed, we still don't have quite enough houses. If we look at the number of people that would like to buy a house that don't own a house right now and that have been saving for it, you'll see we don't have enough houses to go around. If you add to that the low interest rate that we had during the pandemic, you saw a lot of houses being purchased, which is why the price was going up. And you also had a lot of people that were moving from one house to another because they hated living in their house because they had cabin fever during the pandemic. We get a lot of questions about, isn't this going to lead to people buying houses that they can't afford? We're not seeing that. The banks in question are really aware of that danger of selling of selling a mortgage to somebody who can't pay for it. So what you're having is people with good credit scores are still able to buy houses. And those are the upticks in housing purchases that we're seeing. People that can pay with cash uh, for about six months, that was the vast majority of the purchases in the housing market were people that just had the cash. They either sold a house and took the proceeds and bought the new house without a loan or just had enough money on hand to buy the house outright. That's the kind of house purchasing that we're seeing now versus the people that really couldn't afford it. It's a lot easier to track now because we had another disaster. And this kind of fits into what we were saying about why there was only one major point port on the West Coast. We had other ports. They just weren't taking the big shipments because they weren't dredged out. They hadn't spent the money on it. It required a catastrophe for us to say, hey, let's diversify a bit. Let's get those other ports built up. That wasn't a governmental move. It was a lot of private enterprise money saying, hey, we'll take those extra ships over here. You'll pay for it because we're paying for it. That's caused the business outlook to be better. When it comes to housing, there are a lot of people that are sitting on a lot of money that they've built up to buy a house with that are waiting to do it because interest rates are so high. Uh, Freddie Mac's uh, most recent update, they do did this as of, uh, I guess it was Thursday. Their average price on good credit uh, is for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 6.43%. Well, that sounds a lot higher than the 2.5% rate that we saw in the middle of 2020. Uh, It is a lot higher. That has really hit the demand for houses. We're seeing an uptick on house starts, on housing starts. But when we're looking at Who's buying these things? We're seeing 20% down payments. We're seeing healthy house purchases because they're expensive right now. The danger comes when people say, hey, it's never going to be expensive again and I don't can't really afford this, but I'll be able to sell it for a profit at some point. We're not seeing that right now. That's that's good news. The the difficult part is if these companies that were building houses and were trying to get into the housing market because there's not enough houses around, they're getting burned by this because the number of house purchases has dropped drastically. Um, Year over year, Austin's house market is down 13%. Now, the Case-Shiller Index of the nationwide houses, we saw our first uptick there for about 12 months, which means overall the market's starting to recover, but the hot areas that were way overpriced are still way, way down. And to give an example, it's an easy example to give because it's where we're located. If you're listening in a podcast, this won't make as much sense, but follow along. The area north of Austin, which is where we live um, and our business is, we haven't seen a downturn there yet. 
In fact, we're still seeing numbers going up in value. That doesn't mean that that's going to continue. Why is it that Austin is seeing a drop of 13% on house prices where go north of there to Gerald and Georgetown, Salado and Temple, you're seeing an uptick in prices year over year. Well, the answer is that people that were moving to Austin for jobs, because Austin had a lot of jobs available, still does, were looking at the prices in Austin and saying, whoa, not only no, but H-E double hockey stick, no, um, I'm going north or I'm going south. That's continued. People that are still moving to Austin are going a outside of Austin to find affordability. That will come to a stop eventually. There's been a lot of house construction in that area. And once those houses start hitting the market, the prices are likely to drop. That's that's just supply and demand. We've got a lot of supply that's about to hit the market and the demand has flattened out. This is it's fascinating, but if you go back to our 2018 radio programs and start listening through there. We talked about this likely to happen in 2023 or 2024. We had a pandemic in the middle that nobody could have predicted. This was a prediction we made just on normal cycles. People tend to overpurchase. Everybody jumps into the market at the same time. This is how markets act. They're cyclical. Uh, People tend to dump out of the market at the same time, which is why you have bear markets. Uh, if, If we were all purely logical in our purchases of houses, in our purchases of stocks and bonds, we wouldn't see these crazy swings up and down. We tend to act like herd animals and do it all at the same time. Those of us that try to look ahead and say, hey, this is a cycle we can recognize, should see prices being more affordable in the near future for houses. And at some point, interest rates will change from what they are. They may come back down. If we have a recession, interest rates will likely drop. If we don't, they'll probably stay where they are and maintain where they are with a little bit of upward. The Federal Reserve next week is likely to raise interest rates again. They said they would. They've been pretty clear on doing what they said they were going to do, and that's going to make houses a little less affordable. You have something to add? Yeah, I think interest rates are not going to come back down to where they were over the last decade for some very good reasons, because inflation's not going to come down. Why is inflation not going to come down? We in the United States have a lot of money to spend because we're wealthy as a a nation and as people. The the wages, the, the actual compensation wages, the dollars and cents that the lower lowest quarter of income earners in the United States receives is up by 7 or 8% in the last year, which is a lot more than inflation. And they are spending the money. One of the reasons we had super low inflation for so long is because there was a lot of cheap labor available in China. It's not available anymore. It's getting less available with each passing day. As the standard of living goes up and our relationship with China begins to bog down, and it is bogging down. So we're going to have a situation where we have more, there are more people wanting to buy stuff. That's goods in economic terms. And you're going to have people who make the stuff not have the capacity to make as much as people want to buy. This causes prices to go up, which means the Fed is... For, for a decade now, the Fed has been fighting deflation, trying to get inflation back up to 2%. I think there was a major sea change early this year, or I mean in 2022. And as a result, we are going to see more normal interest rates based on the long term so that the ultra-low interest rates we've seen recently are not going to be there simply because of supply and demand. Demand has gone up. Supply is not gone up as much as demand. 
The end result, prices will rise. The Fed will need to continue to fight the prices by keeping interest rates up. Why is that important? It's the same thing I talked about last hour. If you have your money in an organization that has a lot of long-term bonds, right now, the majority of the pundits and a lot of investors are betting on a Fed pivot, meaning that the economy will go into recession and the Fed will drop all its interest rates and the bonds will rise back up in value, resurrected from an early day. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see higher interest rates for a long time. The ECB, the European Central Bank, is saying the same thing to the Europeans that the Federal Reserve has been saying over here, which is interest rates will be higher, longer than the market expects. We're waiting for things to get back to low interest rates. They're not going to go there. It's one of the things that is just a reality. It's going to cost more to do things in the future than it does today. Interest rates are going to remain up. We're not going back to the good old days where interest rates are 1% or 2%. That has a lot of effect on what you invest in, on where you invest, and on a lot of other things. So it's one of those things that I'm, I've said it, bear it in mind. Yeah, and, and it bears listening as to why it is that we saw uh, interest rates as low as they were. Well, they were as low as they were first because the global financial crisis hit. So interest rates were low uh, and they started coming back up over the time after that. It's been a long time, though. They slowly went up and then the pandemic hit and the pandemic required interest rates to drop drastically. Uh, it, it had to. Otherwise, uh, people would be paying on loans for businesses that would just fail if the interest rates were higher. It, those of you that were, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that people are forgetting already, but it's about the right time period. It's now been three years. That's about in another half a year. That's as long as our average emotional memory goes, three and a half years. In the depths of the downturn of the lockdown of the pandemic, people weren't making any money. The businesses were not receiving people to come in and sit in the restaurants. It feels odd to have to remind people of this because we're starting to get to the point where people are forgetting. And the Federal Reserve dropped interest rates drastically because if they hadn't, a lot of businesses would have failed, major businesses and little businesses, because people weren't buying. They weren't showing up at the store to buy things. In the middle of that, stores that had really been going downhill for a long time Bed Bath & Beyond is a great example, got pushed up into the stratosphere as far as their prices went because people at home that didn't have time to do, that didn't have anything else to do. They didn't know how to work from home yet. We hadn't had the advent of the huge amounts of, of technology that came along to allow us to work from home. They were just sitting and looking at their stock portfolio and Bed Bath & Beyond, which had been a struggling company, GameStop, which was already a struggling company. People said, well, last I remember them was, you know, I'd go to the mall and I'd go to those places. They didn't think, well, when was the last time I went to the mall? Uh, well, I haven't been to the mall in five years uh, or more. That's a truism that we missed. If we didn't have the low interest rates that we did at that point, a lot of good businesses, restaurants across the board would have just failed. A lot of them did anyway. Daycare institutions, uh, preschools, schools of private schools, public schools. I mean, public schools had their tax revenues in just fine. If you had a private school, you didn't get anything. Because you're nobody was there, uh, and that the the spread of the different types of businesses that would have gone under had the Federal Reserve not said, "All right, we have to get 
really, really cheap money available. And that led to people saying, hey, cheap money is available. Let's buy a house. But there's three people all trying to buy the same house, but cheap money is available so that you can push that price up. They had to come back in and curtail that. They had to cut back on the cheap money to cause us to look at the housing market and say, yeah, it's a bit too high, maybe more than a bit. So to say that Austin is now 13%, that's great, except that if you look back for the preceding couple of years, the rate of increase on the prices was up above 20% multiple years in a row. A, a little 13% downturn doesn't doesn't get rid of that completely. Why we say interest rates are going to stay up for a while? Well, the Federal Reserve has said it for sure. But as we go back into this, there's still not en- enough houses available. There's, cars are being manufactured now, but and you know I said this last month that that we have finally seen the prices of used cars drop below the prices of new new cars again. That was an inverted curve if you ever saw it. Used, yield, used cars should not be wor- more valuable than a brand new car. It just should not be, except there weren't enough new cars. So we're, we're coming back to a sense of reality, and that means that our over-exuberance in buying things with cheap money need to be cut back. You know, we still have a lot of money sitting in cash. That means there's still a real demand for houses. When we see an uptick on housing purchases, 6.43% is what Freddie Mac is saying that the average good credit uh, 30-year loan is going at. And back in 2009, so this is after the the global financial crisis, I bought a house at 6.5% interest and I thought I had a really good deal. This this is a, a reasonable interest rate based on history. It hurts when we look at it today, especially with the housing prices that, that have come way, way up. Well, that means the housing pricing has to come down if people are going to continue to purchase it. So this is, it's, it's hard to imagine that people have forgotten the depths of the pandemic. But the reality is that most of us have. And the studies are coming out, the behavioral finance studies, which are really psychology studies, on asking people how long the lockdown lasted. This is a good one to ask anybody you know. How long were we on a lockdown? How long was it that we basically said, everybody stay in your house? And I'm not going to tell you the answer because everybody listening probably has a different answer. I bet you have an answer off the top of your head. How long were we in lockdown? How long were we stuck in our house without going out? I I don't have a good feel for that one way or the other because I didn't feel particularly stuck in my house. I could go out. I just needed to wear a mask. Right. Well, that's the reality is that most people don't have landmarks because we had weddings canceled <clears throat> and family reunions canceled and friends' birthday parties canceled. Those are little landmarks that we have in our memory to say, oh, that was around when so-and-so got married, or the big events in our lives give us milestones. And we missed the milestones for about a year. So that year has kind of disappeared in our memory to somewhere between weeks and months to, and some people think it was multiple years, depending on what your condition was. We need those milestones to remember when time passed. And the other piece of this is that because a lot of our listeners survived the global financial crisis, were adults during that time period, 
and remember it. And it was a big deal. We tend to look back at that and say, we don't want that again. And if people are buying houses today, we need, they need to make sure that they're not going to break the system again. This is the, the, the next crisis won't be the one that we just had. The next war won't be the one we're training for because we train for the last war. The next crisis won't be the crisis that we just had because we're all paranoid about re repeating it. All of us don't want that. I don't know anybody that wants a repeat of the global financial crisis, and we're all very aware of what happened that led up to it. Well, the next crisis, whatever it is, won't be the same circumstances. We'll have to wait a long time for people to forget about this one before we repeat it. And that is just the reality of human history. Uh, although, to be perfectly correct, I might have to say herstory as well, or uh, the preferred pronoun story. Uh, uh, in the future there. Do you have something to take on the next part of this? Because I feel like I have now kicked this horse enough times. Oh, it's, I have the same story all over again from different perspectives. And it, it boils down to the fact, and we've talked about this before, but it's important to understand. We had a really major downturn in economic activity in the United States during the pandemic period, however long it was when we weren't buying things, except online. We bought a lot of things online, and the things we bought online are goods. Goods prices went up because China was not shipping at the time. They were they were locked in. They were in lockdown. And the end result is we had, when we came back from that, we came back really, really, really strongly. The economy was roaring ahead as we played catch-up. Now, a big piece of that roaring ahead was replenishment of inventory. Retailers and wholesalers both and run out of stuff. I mean, you saw empty shelves in the retailers. Yeah, I mean, toilet, so, toilet paper is the easiest one to yeah. look at for that. So a lot of things had to be restocked. And so during the latter part of last year, we had usually high GDP numbers because we were buying a lot of stuff to put in storage. Well, that stopped. So when that stops, it looks like growth has slowed down dramatically. That's what's going on right now. We are still in the aftershocks of the pandemic, which is why we have leading economic indicators pointing in opposite directions. Um, the traditional way of measuring where the economy is going just isn't working very well. So what we have to do at this point is just kind of carefully walk our way through this without getting too excited one way or the other and just be flexible. Uh, there's a lot of fear, worry, uh, and the old saying, I don't know who originally coined it. I certainly, uh, I heard, um, John Templeton say it. I heard, uh, Philip Correa say it, bull market climbs a wall of worry. Uh, we, we are probably sitting in the best place economically in the world right now. Uh, there's just not any comparison and we're in the most secure nation in the world and the, the fastest growing in absolute terms nation in the world. And I know I keep beating on that drum, but there's a tremendous number of people who are, want to say bad things about the economy because it sells clicks and papers. It ain't so folks. You think the economy, don't, don't believe me. Go out and look at I-35. Look at the traffic on I-35. Look at Try to get into a restaurant to get a meal on a weekend. You'll see that people are driving our economy forward. Does that exacerbate inflation? To some degree, it does. And what the Federal Reserve is trying to do is slow the economy back to what they refer to as below-trend growth. Well, if 1.1 winds up being the correct number for the first quarter, it's an annualized number, that is below-trend, and it is the kind of thing that would cause inflation to come down. And sure enough, if you look to month-to-month inflation, it's running at a very, very low, like a tenth of a percent, maybe two tenths of one percent, which means currently month to month, 
inflation is running at about the speed the Federal Reserve wants it to run. Now, they got to keep holding the pressure on. And the reason they got to keep holding the pressure on is there's still more jobs available than there are people, which tends to bid up wage prices, which gives people more money to spend. And more money to spend combined with not enough stuff to buy generates inflation. So that's just basically where we are in the world today. Um, and, and it's important to keep your eye on that and not listen to the bad news because the bad news, it's, they're just, I have never in my 50 years of observing and working in this business, I have never seen a more widely forecast recession. Um, and it's, and there's something, there's a truism also in there. If, the consensus among everybody is something's going to happen economically in the future. The chances are it won't happen. Um, too many people believe in. Too many people think there's a recession coming. There's too much money that's been pulled out and sitting on the sideline waiting to come in when the recession hits. So we're not in a position where people are overspent, where they have all the debts they can handle, where they uh, have more house than they can afford to buy. We just don't, we're just not seeing that. Things look pretty darn good out there. And they continue to look pretty darn good out there everywhere I look. Um, so, and we seem to be almost the lone ranger on that because yeah. uh, everybody else is saying big recession coming. Well, with the exception of Moody's. Moody's is saying yeah. either a very mild recession. It's, it only lasts one quarter, which means it really wouldn't be a recession. Uh, in in the conference that we canceled going to, we were almost went to the Morningstar concert. A conference this last week, uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, uh, talked about the potential for a recession in the near future and how the debt crisis is just the tip of the iceberg and this is going to happen. Hank Paulson, another Secretary of Treasury, uh, says, I think it's pretty likely we'll see a recession. Why are they saying that? Because they think that we're going to see a recession. Now, why are we saying we could avoid one? This is one of those unmeasurable things in past recession, the amount of money on hand above what we had before. We have a lot of cash sitting in the system. Uh, you probably have more in your bank account today by a substantial amount than you did in 2019. This is true for about every American. That's not true for every American, but it's true for a lot of Americans. They have a lot more money in the bank than they did in 2019. That's a piece of information that doesn't fit into the normal economic picture. When we had uh, the 1980s ending the 1970s inflation spike, so up into 1982, we didn't have a lot of money sitting in the bank. There's a percentage of our income. It was a very small percentage. Uh, if we look back at, at other times when we have inflationary press pressures and then uh, credit seized up. The global financial crisis, we didn't have anywhere near as much money as we do now in our bank accounts. Part of the reason why we have the ability for inflation to be there is that we have enough money to spend on. But we've slowed down our spending recently. And by slowing down the spending, but still spending enough, we may completely avoid a recession. As you said in the first hour, all of the leading indicators were predicting that we would start our our recession at the beginning of 2023, the first quarter of 2023. And we didn't. We saw a little bit of growth. Well, we're still seeing a little bit of growth. When we look around at the economy, we're still seeing cars 
packing the restaurant parking lot. If you go to eat out, you're going to wait in line. That is not the sign of a coming recession. Well, how do we combine the data, this really bad news data with the really good news data? And this is why you're seeing the amount of confusion that you are across the academic economists. Most economists that are writing in the papers have some kind of financial incentive to do so. When it comes to former secretaries of treasury, particularly ones that rode through traumatic events. Hank Paulson was at the helm when the global financial crisis hit. And this is a interesting thing. We were at a different conference at the in 2008 um, when Hank Paulson was scheduled to come and talk. And he couldn't because they were in emergency conversations with AIG. So we had Nouriel Maliki, who wrote The Black Swan, that talks about horrible events and how you can't predict them uh, and how people say, no, those don't, uh, don't actually occur. He spoke instead. And it was ironic, maybe, that he was the speaker because we were seeing a black swan event in the day that he was talking to us at the conference. Larry Summers and Hank Paulson both have a little bit of PTSD. It doesn't mean that they're not astute. It means that they're very aware that the things that led us into the last recession was a banking crisis. It was a loan issue crisis. When you come forward to now, it is a we have a little bit of a banking crisis going down now, but it's in the medium-sized banks, not the massive ones that would bring down the whole system if one of them failed. So if we have a recession based on the credit crunch that has already alleviated, and I spoke about this during the last several months, the Federal Reserve put $400 billion of cash back into the market when SVB failed. It went directly toward these medium-sized banks and buying up assets that were in a loss, but giving them cash just in case. That didn't occur during the global financial crisis for a long period the Troubled Asset Relief Program was under consideration and failed. It was a three-page document that basically was going to flush a bunch of money into these major institutions, and it failed in Congress. And so Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns failed. And you come forward, and they eventually did pass the Troubled Asset Relief Program, known as TARP. And when that was passed, banking institutions stopped failing, and we got back onto a normal footing as far as loans go but the damage had already been done. So as I said, we have trained really hard for the last crisis and the Federal Reserve stepped in really fast when SVB failed. Now, there was a headline yesterday in the Wall Street Journal where the Federal Reserve is admitting that they should have done more to prevent SVB from failing, that they loosened a lot of the restrictions voluntarily, not just the ones that Congress changed, but their own restrictions, and they shouldn't have. And so they're back to looking at those middle-sized banks that way again. This is, add all this together and you have a confusing picture. And the confusing picture is we look around and we see signs of growth and not a lot of signs of failure. The signs of failure we're seeing are in the most overpriced areas of, of our economy, in the tech world, where people, you know, Tesla, to be at his peak price, would have had to sell all the cars in the world, all of them, plus do all the restaurants in the world to, to have that kind of price. So it needed to be brought down. It needed to come down. Uh, and Philip Correa's statement of you don't know who's not wearing a swimming suit until the tide goes out 
Well, the tide's gone out just a little bit. The interest rates became more expensive, and a lot of the tech companies that were basing a lot of their research on cheap money, a lot of their new hiring on cheap money, they can't do that anymore. They had to lay off. But during the time that they've been laying off, we haven't seen unemployment go up. We've seen the opposite, people coming out of non-work and into the workforce again. And we're keeping up with that. So all of the signals that say we're in a recession don't exist right now. But we still have all this gloomy signals of, hey, we're not buying what we used to be at the producer level, at the retail level. Well, we've filled up our inventories. We don't need more than we have in the inventory. There's only so much toilet paper you can store in the back room before you don't have room in the back room. And we're at that point. We're actually starting to see inventories and warehouses drop a little bit as they're being used to, to, <laughs> to as people are buying off the shelves. So all of that, to say it lightly, it's confusing. The, the reality is that if we do have a recession, it was it would be because of inventory buildup. But we're already seeing we're beyond the inventory buildup. The recession should be right now if those markers were, were telling us the truth. And we're not seeing that. We still could see a, a recession. And that's something that you're never going to hear us say we won't have a recession. We don't think it's likely. I would say it's a 40% out of 100 that we'll have a recession this year. Um, that's still almost a coin toss, but we're seeing growth in small business that we haven't seen before. Um, and that's important to take into account as well. All right. So, and we're about out of time. This is the personal wealth coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on, this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, 
Do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.